0: Delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town.
1: Welcome to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs. Episode 64 continues Oscar's conversation with the voice of the Cats, Tom Leach. Throughout Tom's tenure, covering the Cats, he has witnessed the wins rack up in basketball, some unbelievable wins in football, and some memorable coaches and players that helped shape his career as the voice of the Cats. You will get Tom's thoughts on the past football coaches at UK, including the coach that Tom interviewed when he was 16 years old, how mummy made Tom Leach's job easier, but he also made somebody else's job look a little bit better, and we'll hear how. Tom and Oscar will also discuss about the coach in waiting and the mystery surrounding the quarterback situation against Kentucky's big rival and how the students helped the cats out that day. Tom will tell you about some of his earliest memories of Coach Adolph Rupp and he does a pretty good Joe B. Hall impression as well. You'll get the voice's thoughts on Eddie Sutton and Rick Patino both on his time at Kentucky and Louisville. And who are the two movie stars Rick Patino liked to talk about? That answer is pretty easy. We'll hear about how February 14th, 1998 turned around Tubby Smith's first year as head coach at Kentucky, and what was Tom Leach's relationship like with one Billy Clyde Gillespie? That answer is forthcoming. You will get more from The Voice on John Calipari, Tim Couch, Randall Cobb, Tayshaun Prince, Anthony Davis, and more greats than wore the blue and white. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs, and he's alongside the Voice of the Cats, Tom Leach.
0: Tom, you've been around for most of the current coaches and the past 20 years of coaches, either in school or working. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the football coaches and just go down the line and just give me your highs and lows of of their eras. Skip wherever you want to. Um, You were here for at least the latter part of the Fran Kersey era. Uh,
2: Yeah, yeah. just as, you know, I, I remember about Fran. I mean, just, I was just a, as a fan, and he produced some really good teams. Those were fun games to go to in 76, 77. Derek Ramsey and Art Still and all those guys. And I remember one time I was a young broadcaster. I started when I was in high school doing games. Or not doing ga- so much games, but just working at the radio station. And you could probably never do this now, but I remember calling up Fran's office and got an interview with him. And he I – was, I was, you know uh, – I thought that was a. Uh, I was happy that he, you know, grateful, I guess would be a better word that he did that for a guy he didn't know. But, you know, nowadays there's so many media outlets and that would never happen. But uh, I just got a little kid from a 16 year old kid from a station in Paris called him up and got a phone interview with him.
0: That was a different era. Yeah. I can remember back in, I guess it was uh, mm, the late 60s. And uh, when Western Kentucky put together their great basketball team, McDaniels, Glover. Rose, Jim Rose, all those guys. And Jimmy Rose had first signed a national from letter. From Hazard. From Hazard. With Houston and Guy Lewis. But the, uh, not, not the national letter, a conference letter, which was honored between the SEC and the Old Southwest Conference. When it came time to sign a national letter, he ends up signing, he had signed with Houston, the conference letter. And he signed a national letter with Western. And I call up Guy Lewis. And Say, I would, I would speak with Guy Lewis, and the secretary said, Well, who is this and what do you want? And I told him, She said, Hold on, she said, put him on there.
2: You know, <laughs> you don't do that. No, me. no, that's a bygone era, <laughs> Jerry Claiborne. Uh, yeah, and, and Jerry, I, I came to work in Lexington in '84, so I, you know, covered news conferences and things. And Coach Claiborne was always very nice to me, didn't really have any direct interaction with him because I wasn't doing I think uh, about the end of his tenure was when I started doing the postgame shows. I think maybe his last year uh, was my first year on the network. So didn't have a lot of interaction with him, but just always just a classy gentleman.
0: You know, he came in mostly because at the time when Kersey left, uh, the mood around the state and with some of the politicians, they wanted to sort of clean it up. Mm-hmm. He had that image of being a UK ex-player and done real well at Virginia Tech and Maryland and came in. he finally had
2: that one really good year. I think it was 84 and had West some Cox. good teams later in the 80s that just mm-hmm. couldn't quite break they were about one always one maybe one always game away. one
0: game away. And that was when you could go 6 and 5 and couldn't get in.
2: Yeah, now he would have gone to more bowl games now.
0: Yeah, and of course he left and then of course Bill Curry come in.
2: Yeah, and the only interaction I had with Bill, we did a show called Bench Talk in those days on the network where it was a Monday through Friday show that the affiliates would run, and it was supposed to be me. It uh, was part of uh, my job, that uh, the list of duties that I had in my role with the U.K. network was to do that show, and you'd go maybe tape 15, 20 of them at a time, you know, two, three, four weeks' worth, and it was supposed to be kind of one-minute shows away from – X's and O's might be, you know, Coach Curry, who was the biggest influence on your life as a coach? Or, you know, what was your favorite uh, movie you've watched? Or, uh, you know, stuff like that. And so I I did those shows with him. So it was fun to get to, you know, interact with him in that way, away from, you know, the just X's and O's of of football. So just a good guy. Always had great stories. You know, could get good Lombardi stories out of him and Shula stories and all of that.
0: Early on into it, it became Pamela Painfully obvious that he wasn't going to be able to get the kind of record at Kentucky that he had at Alabama, and there are a lot of people who say that Alabama was gently, you know, pushing him when he left there. Uh, It did bring on the Kentucky-Louisville series in '94. Good, bad, indifferent.
2: You know, I understand the arguments. I think you made some of them, but it was not, not they shouldn't have done it. I always look at it from a football fan. I've enjoyed it. I think as a football fan, I like the series. the the I understand the the art. I can I can listen to and, and understand the the business reasons, uh, political reasons, if you will, and it probably did certainly. Uh, I'm sure Howard Howard Schnellenberg would tell you it did a lot for his program. Absolutely, uh, he got more out of it than Kentucky did, I think. But uh, as a fan, I've always enjoyed it.
0: Going back ten years earlier, when they started the basketball series. If you talk to most experts around the country, you said if they ever start playing in football and in basketball, Kentucky will win the football series hands down. and basketball, it would be closer to 50-50. And it's proven almost to be the opposite.
2: Yeah, and and what happened in in football is, um, you know, if the programs had stayed like they were, Mm -hmm. that might have been true. But getting that series, and then that led to get – Get in the stadium for Coach Nellenberger and that helped him in addition to how good a coach he was elevate that program.
0: Yeah, and I, I think probably the, the biggest negative from the Kentucky's point as over the years is unless a kid went to Notre Dame or Michigan in the old days, the pre-UK U L days, they came to Kentucky. Yeah,
2: made in-state recruiting harder.
0: And then when they started playing, why leave Louisville? I mean, yeah. I, I can understand that.
2: And, you know, think back to Coach Claiborne before that series started, how many great players he got out of Louisville. Mm-hmm. In the
0: 80s. Not too many of them since then. Yeah. Uh, We go from Bill Curry at the end, where he's on the verge of losing, UK's on the verge of losing Tim Couch to transfer to Tennessee.
2: I told you he was ready to, he was planning to transfer, didn't he?
0: Well, he he said after the Florida game that he had his brother Greg to call former and say, hey, we're leaving at the end of the year. And Sam Newton steps in, meets with him, and says, you know, if you'll just hang with us at the end of the year. We'll get this turned around hiring Hal mummy,
2: you know, uh, speaking of CM and then I'll get to Hal in a second, you could see him recently passing. You could make the, the argument that he's probably one of the five or 10 most impactful ADs for college football with the hiring of Hal mummy and how that has led to all the air raid stuff that has come from that. Mm-hmm. And then for the university of Kentucky, you know, doing what he did, kept him couch here and, uh, you know, got the Outback Bowl and all those great memories that uh, Tim provided in his uh, his two years as the starter. But I, as I mentioned before, Hal was great to me and gave me so much access that I learned a tremendous amount as I was just starting out in this role. And I'm forever grateful to him uh, for uh, doing that. And, you know, he was he was uh, a savant in terms of offense. He was um, – I mean, you still see impacts of, of what he brought into the SEC that have uh, that are still around that have, you know, morphed into other things. And he's, you know, he's had a tremendous – I was glad somebody did the story a few years ago. They, they for the longest time, they just traced it back to Mike Leach. Mm-hmm. And it really goes back to Hal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even Lavelle Edwards, if you want to go further back out of BYU, which is uh, where he kind of – that was the genesis of him putting together that air raid offense. But uh, uh, Hal was – you know, it, he uh, – uh, could have done some things differently and structure. And uh, he was just so focused on what he was so good at that, you know, probably some other things slipped, but uh, those was some fun times. And uh, certainly when it came to offense, he was uh brilliant.
0: I think there's a little bit of a riverboat gambler in mm-hmm. all of us. It's, I used yeah. to love to watch the old Maverick Siver. Oh yeah. And, and to me, that was how, I mean, he didn't care if he was third and 25 on his own 18. If he had, a, if he had been spotting a, a spot in the defense that had been loose, and he thought he'd go there. Uh, the, the only the only guy I think that would have any real complaint with Hal over the years would have been Mike Majors. Can you just imagine how many times he was a, put in a position <laughs> yeah. of having to defend only twenty yards for a touchdown?
2: Yeah, that, you
0: know, Hal needed a certain kind of
2: guy and, to, to and work I, with. And I guess that's that was true.
0: I guess that was probably a handshake deal and say, Hey, Coach,
2: whatever you say. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's true because um, you always wonder. People always say, you know, Hal had a great defensive coordinator, but then, would a great defensive coordinator have been, had been able to, well, live with those a great, circumstances? A
0: great defensive coordinator would not have taken a job under Hal.
2: Maybe so. Yeah. I mean,
0: he said, "Hey, you're gonna have to show me that if it's on my side of the field,
2: you're gonna punt. You are gonna punt? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hal was so confident. I mean, he was so good at what he did, and so confident. He had, especially if he had the right personnel, that you know he he was confident he could make it um, you know first and twenty from the one, his own one. You had Guy Moore to come in. Yeah, uh, Guy Mo was uh, uh, great to work with. Uh, had a great second season, and then uh, left for for Baylor. Just when it looked like maybe he uh, could uh, take it to uh, a little higher level, um, he had that, you know changed change. some things. He wanted to get, be more physical and, and get away from some of the the ways that Hal had had done it, but. That season in 2002 was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, they were on probation and didn't get to go to a bowl game out of it. But that was a very, very good Kentucky team. And that team.
0: was the beginning of the Mitch Barnhart era.
2: Yeah. And, and uh, he
0: gave him a raise early in the season, and then he wanted uh, Guy Mo wanted to come back and mesh the Baylor thing. And
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, every time you there's a relationship where you're not working for the – guy that hired you one way or the other, or, or the, you, this isn't the guy that you hired, or you're not working for the guy that hired you. It's it's a little different dynamic than uh, when you have that history Very together. Very seldom works. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, um, that uh, guy, Mo, went off to take his opportunity at Baylor, and uh, uh, he got close down there, mm-hmm. really. He had some uh, teams, kind of like Claiborne here in that he was about one win away a couple of years from uh, breaking through and doing uh, getting them to bowl games and things
0: was a bluegrass miracle one of your biggest disappointments
2: yeah i always tell students when i talk to them that you know you you, you want to you mentioned the larry munson story earlier when the mic was off you you, you don't want to say something that could get you fired well i'm pretty sure i won't now because if i if i was going to do it it would have been it would have been, been then <laughs> so it's what i always say if i was ever going to cuss on the air that would have been the moment uh, so yeah i, I uh, you know that gives you Good lesson in terms of, you know, not jumping the gun on things. Uh, and we all do it once in a while. But, uh, you know, make sure to, to run all the way through the tape and, you know, don't take anything for granted as far as an outcome.
0: Coming on the heels of uh, mummy and the probation and then the guy mo and some of the things that went on that last season. And wasn't a very popular time for Mitch to have to be looking for a coach. In fact, he had called on Rich Brooks early in the process, hey, helping me out here Give me some ideas yeah. who can I hire, and of course, just ended up being him.
2: Yeah, and he was he wanted the job. He'd been out of football for a couple of years, and uh, I think uh, Mitch came to warmed up to the idea of some hiring somebody that really wanted the job. He'd made the run at Parcells, and they actually did have a a good shot at getting him. And then the Cowboys came into the mix, and it, you know that point um, you know it was a difficult circumstance to come into, and there weren't a lot of people eager to take on that challenge. And Rich Brooks was, and thank goodness. Uh, because he was uh, – John Crop, a longtime administrator at UK and former coach, he always had a good line. He said Rich Brooks was the only coach he'd ever seen that could go from position group to position group on the practice field and coach technique at every one. Usually everybody's got the, you know, guys, maybe his, his background was as a quarterback or a linebacker or something, and he that's where his main expertise is at. Uh, but Rich could coach technique, and that was – he worked with the punters. I mean, that was every element. He, uh, he uh, was just uh, – such a uh, encyclopedic knowledge of uh, of coaching football, and good example of you know Jerry Claiborne was an older guy, but because of the way that he treated his players, he had their their faith and loyalty that they would have run through fire for him, and it was the same way with Rich, even though people thought you know he's an older guy, he won't be able to to connect and. Uh, you know, those guys went to bat for him in that 2005 season when he was maybe hanging by a thread as far as keeping the job. And
0: I think getting uh, on back of that Harley every now and then sort of got everybody, yeah,
2: maybe so. You know, he's chick, he uh, he was a uh, just a, a cool dude. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but you know, former boxer, so tough as nails, uh, high character, but you know, look you dead in the eye. I mean, he was, you know, if we still had cowboys, he'd have probably been a good cowboy. Um, you know he uh i loved uh, loved working with him and you know and initially he came from a pro background from his rams uh and falcons days and initially even with me i'd always had the play-by-play guy would have access to you know practices where the other media members would not uh and um but at first he didn't give that to me first couple of years because he thought i might talk about would be talking about it on the air during another show finally uh, Came to realize that you know when I was there watching practice, it was for the play-by-play role, and that was not going to be. I was not going to share anything that I saw there, much like Hal giving me the the, the double reverse, and so uh, developed just a, a great relationship with with Rich, and he's still still a good friend.
0: You know, you know he he started preaching early about facilities, mm. but he never got any attraction until he got into the bowls, and then after four straight bowls, really after three straight bowls. And he saw nothing happening. You could just sense, and they made Joker coaching waiting, which I don't understand that to this day. But they did well.
2: He, I think, Rich wanted to continue what he had started, even if he wasn't going to finish it. I think that's what they were trying to do. But those things never seemed to to work out very well.
0: Uh, and and it was very, I mean, among, I think it hurts recruiting. Yeah, and among friends, at the end, uh, they they just felt like that with what he had. He had felt like what he'd accomplished. They should move, but then at the same time, the university was not getting that pot of gold from the SEC network yet.
2: That they got later.
0: That they got later. Had that money come along three or four years earlier, they been may have been able to to get him to stay on a little bit longer. And I thought he was right there at the time.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. He's he got uh, he got them to a, a level where I mean they they uh, had some big wins. I, I think Mark Stoops has them back to kind of that same level now. They've gone to two straight bowl games and won seven games in the regular season both years. Uh, what they now – now this group needs to do, they need that breakthrough signature moment like beating LSU when they were number one or, or upsetting Georgia in 06 that propelled a bowl run is they need – in the you know, last year against Florida was going to be, I think, that moment and uh, they let it slip away. It'll ha- I think it'll ha- it'll come, hopefully this year. But that's, that's the next thing they need to hopefully – take it to that proverbial next level where it's been so hard to get to.
0: When they had that phenomenal 2007 season, they beat Louisville in it. Uh, They were in the top ten when they played Florida.
2: They they beat Louisville when they were ranked ninth at that time when they beat them, and they beat number one LSU, so they beat two top ten teams in the same season.
0: And I think when he didn't get the administration to move forward right then, he probably figured, hey, you know, I do need to go play golf. I need to go fishing. Let me get. Let me let me see if the next guy can do it. Yes.
2: Yeah, but that he wanted that next guy to be somebody that would, you know, he thought he had a good staff together and you know had a good plan, and he wanted to see that continue. And I, I think their their heart was in the right place in doing it. But as we've said, those those, those things rarely seem to work when uh, you try to orchestrate that transition.
0: And and in spite of the three year run there, that was very very uneventful. It was very eventful for one reason, and it took a guy by the name of Matt Roark to get it done.
2: Oh, beating Tennessee, yeah. Uh, and funny story on that um, kind of goes back to when I said when Hal would give me that info, I would never tell anybody. The week of the Tennessee game, Morgan Newton was hurt, and it was Maxwell Smith was the other quarterback, I think, was hurt. Nobody knew to which, what degree. They thought uh, Morgan just had a dinged-up shoulder, and he'd be, you know, okay to play. I went out to practice on Wednesday and I will always think that the fact that the Tennessee game is now, well, then was the last game of the regular season and was after Thanksgiving for the longest time. It was the weekend before being the weekend after Thanksgiving meant that students were gone after Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So they didn't, in the first major practice of the week isn't until Tuesday. So students are gone after Tuesday. So I go out there Wednesday and I watch for about half hour and I turn to the trainer, uh, was uh, standing next to Jim Madalino, who's been there as long. He's been there as long as I have. I said Jim, "Is Kentucky a Veer team now? Because they were look like they were just running the, the old Veer from the seventies uh, with Derek Ramsey with Roark. because he was the only guy taking snaps at quarterback, and they were doing option stuff and not throwing many passes. And uh, you know, then he told me what the situation was with the two quarterbacks, Morgan and, and Max, and they couldn't play. They weren't. They didn't. So." They kept all that under wraps, and so I knew it from Wednesday on. Didn't tell anybody. Oh, you
0: uh, didn't tell us? Because on a pregame show that day, uh, a student walked up and swore that Matt Roark was starting at quarterback today. And you've got to be out of your mind. I'm telling you, he's starting today. So you did a good job, Tom. Well, Rick
2: Minter had told me a story. He was a defensive coordinator then former Cincinnati head coach, he was jokers DC and mentor had told me a story that week about a game he had been involved with a similar situation. And the radio guy had mentioned it to the other team's radio guy (laughs) and a half hour before the game. And he told the coaches and they got somewhat prepared for it. So having heard that story, I wasn't telling anybody. And I always say that the fact that students weren't there that week and that really didn't get out. And I think, uh, Drew Franklin, a KSR, may have actually done a post on it. Nobody believed him, and um, that's funny. Read, you know, I'm reading that, and I'm like, I know it's true, <laughs> nobody believes it. And then, um, then you know, they come out, and Rourke, you know, goes out there, and everybody thinks it's a gimmick. And he's going down the field. Well, the Tennessee coaches are in the booth next to us, the assistant coaches that are up in the press box. Papers are flying everywhere. They're scrambling, and there's they don't they finally come to realize that oh, this option guys guys are running the options their quarterback and they're scrambling and so kentucky goes down and gets a field goal to that first drive the difference of the game was three points yes so i think keeping it under wraps was a big key in winning the game because they got stole that the uh, field goal on that first drive and then they really only had one other drive the rest of the day but they went down and got a touchdown and that was the 10 points that got them the win
0: let's switch over to the round ball sport. Uh i got, I got to ask you what your memories were of Adolph Rupp to start out with, even though you weren't around, you were
2: Just as you yeah, follow him as a fan, my uh, parents and uh, my mom and dad and my aunt and uncle had a little country store uh, that they owned together in a community about halfway between Lexington and Cynthiana down Russell Cave Road. It was called Jacksonville, and it was the Jacksonville store. And Coach Rupp's uh, cattle farm was about a mile or so up the road from there. So I I'm sure I probably saw him when I was a kid. I don't have any memories of it, but my mom would tell me he'd come in at, at the end of every month and the farm whoever ran the farm had a charge account at the store to get whatever he needed for the farm, uh food, supplies, etc. And Coach Rupp would come down at the end of every month, meticulously go over that bill and then settle up. And then they'd see him again a month later. So I always remember that story, but I never I had any memories of him. Um and then, um, I said, my, uh, uh, my dad's good friend that had the season tickets would take us to games. And so, you know, somewhere in the 71, 72 seasons, they got to, we'd get to go to a few games. So I saw Coach Rupp, you know, coach a few times in Coliseum, uh, just, you know, as nine, 10 years old, I have that memory, but, uh, never really had any, you know, interaction with him. I wasn't working, covering the, the team. He, he passed, uh, I think he passed in the. What seventy seven basketball seventy seven basketball season and I started game. working in radio that fall, mm-hmm. so I wasn't working in the business yet. So just remember, remember him as a fan and uh, the impact on the game.
0: Going from off to Joe B, a lot of controversy. A lot of people thought he should retire, and uh, because of his age and his health, a lot of people thought he should continue coaching as long as he wanted to.
2: And I was just following all that as a as a fan. I mean, the. Uh, like days long before ESPN, I was uh, such a huge sports fan. I was, you know, consuming everything I could, reading the newspaper and listening to the radio. And but there weren't talk shows in those days, and et cetera. But uh, there's enough, you know, coverage to know that it was a tough spot for Joe. And as I said earlier, nobody's probably done a better job of following a legend uh, than than he did, and and following Coach Rupp. Uh, and then when I came to work in Lexington in '84, that was near the end of Joe's tenure. So I covered his teams, you know, a couple of seasons just as a reporter. One of my funny stories I remember, I always thought in looking back, we should have known that this was kind of an uh, indication of where the Joe was ready to step down. They would have the news conferences, day before the game news conference at the Lodge. Cool. And they had that big table that probably two dozen people could sit around. And Joe would be at the head of the table doing the news conference. And, you know, I'd be there, you'd be there, Jerry, you know, all the uh, reporters to – get cover the news conference and they had a uh, speaker box where reporters that f- couldn't get in would be on and they had the speaker phone there in front of Joe and i think it may have been Brad Davis was the SID would check in with the reporters before they start the news conference and Mike Sullivan late Mike Sullivan from the career was the beat Sully. writer for the CJ and Brad leaned over uh Sully you there? Yeah Brad I'm here. Okay. Okay, we're ready. Go ahead, coach. Sully? You there? Yes, coach. Okay. Kaywood Try some of this lobster. How about some more wine? And he started joking with, with people about you know, Sully, look what you're missing out on. <laughs> and you know that was very uncharacteristic for for Joe. he was uh, he didn't do that like what you know, the guy we came to know later after the pressure was off. Sully was a great great guy to be on the road with. I bet. and Go when ahead. we
0: would be on the road, he would come around after we would be eating at a restaurant. And he said, you need that receipt there? And I said, well, no, not could I have it? (laughs) Take the better receipt. (laughs) And he would always, uh, he never ate as well as he got (laughs) (laughs) reimbursed.
2: I always thought Joe cutting up like that, in retrospect, that probably was an indication that he had decided, he'd made his decision he was going to retire.
0: Well, uh, Kenny Walker told me on one of the podcasts with him that he had never seen Joe like he was that last year versus the year before. It was different. And there was just totally says like the weight had been left off his shoulder.
2: Yeah, because uh, you know he he kept it at a at a high level, won a championship, went to final fours, and uh, you know the, he he did what was expected. But there was a tremendous amount of pressure, and you know he had to. I think he felt like you know could he have been could he have let that lighter side show and still done as well. We'll never know. He did it the way he thought he needed to be done, and he succeeded, so you can't question that.
0: And, and there were some rough spots through the through the years there, too. I mean, he lost Bowie for two years. Yeah. Uh,
2: I wonder what might have been. What
0: might have been. He lost Dwight Anderson, who to this day I think is the best athlete that I've ever seen at Kentucky.
2: One of my favorite Kentucky teams to watch as a fan was a team that wasn't didn't do very well. That seventy nine team was Anderson's freshman year, yes, and Macy and Claytor and Shidler and Joe let the guards go, cut loose, and uh, that was the best SEC tournament. Yeah, and, ever. and that was, and the, first was the, one, one. the first one. There was, this is this year is the fortieth anniversary of the yes. resumption. I hope somebody you know uh, and the, and the plays whole, up some of that stuff.
0: And the whole deal on that one tournament there is they wanted to make it different, and Joe never did like it. And the biggest reason he didn't like it it took him his up. His fifth year to win it, there were yeah. there were five different champions the first five years. Yeah, but in that first tournament, they wanted to make sure that the top two teams got a deciding advantage. They got buys all the way into the semifinal game. Yeah, everybody else had to play four games in four days.
2: And Kentucky, I firmly believe, would have won the automatic bid, would have beaten Tennessee in the finals if. Dwight the blur, Dwight Anderson had not broken his arm in the semifinal against LSU. They were able to win that one anyway, but then they ran out of gas against uh, Tennessee.
0: Auburn and Alabama had a classic four overtime game. And that and then the Kentucky Alabama game, it was just out of this where I made
2: one hundred, Yeah. Right? Yeah. Robert Ra Ra Scott for Alabama, Reggie King. Kentucky had uh, Macy going crazy and Clater. Yeah. And the blur. Uh,
0: that that was that was something that, so we we get to the end of the Joe B. Haller, and uh, the players say they didn't really know that he was going to quit then. Years later, he told me that he had planned on quitting after the 84 season. Yeah, I've heard you tell that story. And, and, and he said but after the Georgetown thing that he played it as though I didn't want him to leave the next coach with a bare cupboard. Yeah. And so he stayed another year, and he certainly didn't leave it bare when he did leave because the next year they were in the lead eight.
2: Thirty-two and four, and beat the eventual national champion LSU. And it, or, yeah, well, it's right uh, Louisville. Louisville, it's right.
0: And had they beaten LSU. They would have been playing Louisville in the next game, but uh, he did come back in '84, '85. They probably got invited to the tournament when they probably shouldn't have. I don't know if uh, I just don't know what went into the reason or they got in, but they got had two tough. Assignments the first two games. I think it's University of Washington
2: with Detlef Shrimp, who had a long yeah, and NBA Christian career. Welp. Christian Velp, Christian Velp, seven and, footer. And then they had the UNLV. Yeah, I think they beat the five C. They were a twelve over a five. They were one of the mm-hmm. one of the first twelves to beat a five. Everybody talks about that every year yeah. when the bracket comes out. And then they beat the four, which was Vegas. Right, played St. John's.
0: And they played St. John's well until Kenny got the scratch in his yeah. eye. I I doubt that they would have beat them. Probably not, but
2: they'd have made a better run at it. It's like they lost by 14 or 16. The day
0: before that game, Joe had his whole family, and they drove up to one of his first coaching assignments at Regis College. Oh, yeah. Near Denver. And that's when I thought, uh uh-oh, something's coming off here.
2: Yeah. I think by the time everybody, because he announced it with, in his post game interview with Kaywood. That is correct. And he, everybody was huddled. I've seen that picture. Everybody yeah. huddled around Kaywood and Kay Joe.
0: Kaywood was there. I mean, everybody.
2: Yeah. yeah. It's kind of and, a uh, prompt to news conference that nobody was asking questions other than Kaywood because he was doing the radio interview. And
0: per, and the uh, vacancy at UK pretty much oversaddled the Final Four. Yeah. That weekend, it turned out to be one of the greatest championship games of all time.
2: Yeah. Uh, and in comes Eddie Sutton. Yeah and you know I was just covering the team and uh Eddie was a fun guy to be around just had you know good stories just a nice nice guy and he had his we would later find out his demons that he was uh, dealing with and you know more about that than than I I was just you know covering some practices and news conferences and and games was was all I was doing in those days but uh you know loved watching that first team play Roger Harden running the show and uh Kenny was so good and he Walker and they had Winston was the four, and then you had Ed Davender and James Blackman were the, the other two guards with Roger. Those three guards, and then you had two Bears up front and Winston and Kenny, and uh, that was a fun team to watch.
0: It was a perfect talent chemistry
2: Beat uh, Eddie Sutton. The back, those were back in the days when we had this big game on Super Bowl Sunday, and they beat uh, Houston. Well, oh no, that was, was eighty four. Oh, 84. Yeah. 84, yeah. 84 That was eighty four. eighty four. That was a big game too. Yeah, but uh, uh, eighty six was a fun team, and I can I can remember that game. I, uh, I wasn't going to the final four, you know, had they won it. But I'm just, you know, was covering the team and was still obviously a fan too, and uh, just and, sure that they were going to the final four.
0: And, and, and Eddie was such a good person, but you know, we, we've all known people close to us who who's battled that, and it's just so difficult. To and you don't know it a lot of times, yes. what they're fighting. And then, of course, uh, the end of that era, uh, ironically, his last game was against Seam Newton and Vanderbilt in the SEC tournament.
2: Oh, yeah. That and, in Birmingham.
0: And No, it was actually in Knoxville. Was it? Okay, Knoxville, Thompson Bowling. Uh-huh. And actually, Seam had already accepted the AD job like three weeks before it. And he agreed to stay he, – he told him he would take it, but he wanted to finish out the year with Vanderbilt. Yeah. And uh, so Eddie leaves, and, of course, we could do two or three podcasts on what mm-hmm. went on the next two months waiting for Rick Patino, but then Rick Pitino comes in.
2: Yeah, and, you know, right guy at the right time. Um, he had embraced the the three-point shot that had changed college basketball. Very, He was a perfect hire at that time, but that's brand of basketball and uh, – you know, making it exciting for Kentucky fans, and you know, bold, brash talk, and uh, it, it was just right what Kentucky fans needed at the time—somebody to believe in in the program, uh, like they did—that it could come back, even though it was so far down. Um, and um, uh, you, the the only really other than just you know covering news conferences and stuff, I was doing that bench talk show that I mentioned with Coach Curry. what I was doing with Coach Patino, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, he I would usually go in and get about a he, he didn't like. He didn't want to do it certainly on a weekly basis and give up that time, but I'd get him, uh, his uh, uh, secretary would get me in like once a month, and we'd do you know 20 shows to get a month knocked out. And the two longest answers I ever got from him in doing that show was supposed to be around a minute or so. And one was on Al Pacino versus Robert De Niro as an actor, <laughs> and the other one had something to do with clothes. <laughs> and again, we're not talking basketball, a lot of basketball hardcore subjects, but those were the two longest answers I remember I got from him.
0: Uh Patino leaving after a 97 season, he won the 96 title. We all know what happened in Indianapolis when he didn't play Derrick Anderson. Uh,
2: yeah, certainly you have to think that had he played, that team would have won the championship. And, you know, it's a credit to, to Rick that he didn't take any chances. But you uh, have to believe that with Derrick Anderson, that team would have won in 97. Mm-hmm.
0: He, he leaves, goes to Boston, spends three and a half years there, or less than four. Comes back to Louisville. What were your personal thoughts when you heard he was coming back to Louisville?
2: You know, he he was very good to me, and uh, and so I was always uh, grateful to him for that kindness, how he had treated me. So uh, I I was personally wanted to see him do well, but I hated I will have to say I, I hated seeing him take the Louisville job. I, I tried to understand why, but I knew it would. It would affect the legacy at Kentucky, and that had been such a fun time that I hated to see that memory, I don't know if tarnished is the right word, but affected maybe is the better word, and it certainly was going to be affected when he went to work for the rival.
0: Uh, Back a couple months before all this came down a year ago, uh, Brooks Downing and I had a podcast, and and we were talking about will there ever come a day – Five ten years after he's retired from coaching, where bygones will by be bygones, and he can come to Rupp and take a cheer. And, and this was before the end of the Louisville thing. Uh, given that fact, and given the fact that his last game at Rupp did not end in the nicest way, can can it can it, that ever be overcome now?
2: It's hard to imagine that it will. It will take would take so much time that I'm not sure. Everybody will be around by then. Had it, had he um, left Louisville and either retired from coaching or gone off the NBA or something, sometime in the shortly after he had eulogized Bill Kitely, I think there was a. It certainly would have happened. It could have happened then, but the the water that went under the bridge uh, in the succeeding years. Uh, it's hard to imagine that it would.
0: Rick Lee's and Tubby comes in and immediately. What the, there were really some struggles during that year, but it came together after they had a so-called team meeting. And, hey, we got to buy in here.
2: I, remember I was doing a post-game call-in show on the network at that time. They put the call-in show on the network. And I remember they lost to Ole Miss on Valentine's Day to go. It was their fourth loss. They might have been maybe 14-4, and four, let's say, at that point. And somebody called in and said it was – Maybe they were twenty two and four I think they were twenty two and fours later, and somebody called in and said, "This is the worst twenty two and four team in the country and uh I remember I had i thought thought of better comebacks later, but I remember thinking that's not the worst thing in the world to be the worst twenty two and four team <laughs> there's a lot worse insults you could put on hang on somebody. The players of that team I've always heard them tell the story, and it was in the wake of that loss that got them to to jail, and that they actually uh, decided to to fully go in with what the way Tubby was coaching them and not resist and not you know say you know we didn't do this Coach Patino didn't do it this way that kind of mindset even where they said it verbalized it or or just felt it but they went all in with Tubby and that's when it took off and uh, so I I, uh, I don't buy the theory that that was you know Rick's he won with Rick's players they they were playing. His style was when they, they both came together that the team clicked. Now, yeah, they were guys, obviously. It's a fact they were recruited by Rick, but that was, those were Tubby's players that won that championship.
0: And, of course, the chair of the basketball committee that presented the trophy to Tubby was the man that hired him. Yeah,
2: yeah. It was an interesting twist of fate.
0: And the next year they go to lead eight.
2: Lost to, in St. Louis to Mateen Cleaves. They led early, mm-hmm. like seventeen to four, and then Michigan State came back and beat them. Two thousand was a tough year, and then oh um, one, they uh, had a uh, you know really good f- finish down the stretch, and then got upset by Southern Cal, and that was Ralph's last game. And then I started the next season, so you know worked the uh, last last half of Tubby's tenure.
0: And and it seemed like that for whatever reason. He didn't uh, want to go toe to toe for the five stars.
2: Yeah, I think you know the the landscape of recruiting was changing, and uh, he was not uh, maybe as comfortable with how it changed. Uh, and um, and still, got, you know, oh three, the twenty six game winning streak. They were the one seed in 0-4. That Patrick Spark shot that got him to the first overtime in oh five. Those three teams. Any one of those three could have got to a final four and maybe won a championship. Certainly, those I three th- games. I
0: think the year they lost to Marquette they, and yeah.
2: Bogans had his ankle yeah. hurt. Yeah, that was a, a team good enough to win the title. Maybe 04, uh, 05, certainly. But it, there's three teams. If they'd gotten to three straight final fours, who knows how long Tubby would have coached?
0: Yeah, good, good point. Uh, were you shocked at Tubby quitting when he did in 07?
2: It uh, had a couple of rough years, and it didn't seem like anybody was very happy. So I can't, I, can't, I was surprised. It was one of the things where you're surprised when you first hear it, and then you digest it a little bit, and you're not, not as, as surprised or certainly not shocked.
0: I remember we, a lot of us were sitting down at Rupp Arena. It's a state tournament, and there was Tubby sitting in the end zone talking to Bill Kitley. And all of a sudden we turn around and looked, He's not there, but, I mean, you know, he's going somewhere else. And then five minutes later, the news is breaking. He's on a plane to Minnesota. Yeah. Um, you tell me, Billy Clyde.
2: Billy, <laughs> you know Billy. I mentioned the conversation with Dave South. So I knew it was kind of uh, unusual uh, situation. And then um, Billy was, and I will always. say He was certainly odd guy to interview. Difficult interview. Uh, I learned pretty quickly you needed – couldn't answer questions that could be answered yes, no, because he'd answer them yes or no. <laughs> so instead of playing, are you going to play zone today, it would be how wide a zone work against this team. <laughs> that kind of thing where you'd have to – because you to know, get a certain amount of time out of those pregame interviews. Um, and uh, I, I remember uh, – you know, he was the kind of guy – I've said people, he could people – and I always thought there was maybe some kind of medical condition maybe there that was never diagnosed. I don't know. Or something else that that affected him that made him uh, some of the quirks that he had. But I always said he was like he could be standing here talking to you. He'd drop his keys, reach down to pick him up, and he'd be a different guy. It was there was a game uh, early that first year where I was waiting to do a pregame interview, and Doris Burke was doing the game for ESPN, and so she came over and they said, could he talk to Doris first? Sure. So they're as far away from she's as far away she and Billy are as far away from uh, me as you are. Uh, and um, he's telling Doris about how Derek Jasper and Jody Meeks haven't been able to practice, and it's affected, you know, what they could do. So, I'm thinking, okay, well, we'll that'll be a good way to, to lead us into the interview for the pregame. So, Coach, uh, you haven't had, you know, Jody and, and Derek and practice much lately. How's that affected your preparation? Well, I don't know why you'd bring that up. We don't want any excuses here. <laughs> I'm like, you just told her that it affected <laughs> your practice. So he was just, you know, un, unusual guy in that. That way, but um, about halfway through his first season, we did the call-in show on a Monday night, and after we finished, you, know, you stand around and talk to some people or whatever, and then I head out to my car. Well, it so happened we came down the steps at the same time, walked outside, you know, making a little, very little chit chat, and I knew he liked horse racing, and uh, I think it was a horse named Pyro had won a prep for the Louisiana Derby very impressively, and I said. Coach, you know you like horse racing. Did You see that race Pyro won the other day on Saturday. We stood there talked twenty minutes about horse racing, and from that point on, he would always talk horse racing with me. And so we would have strange interviews. It, to a listener, it would sound very uncomfortable. And then the, we'd go to a break, and he'd say, "Did you see that race last weekend at Santa Anita? And that, do you think that horse can win the
0: Derby?" You know, he. Uh, you seem to be telling me that he was totally overwhelmed. Oh yeah, by yeah, the I position. Think so.
2: I the story I always heard was that he uh, tried to go back to Texas A&M shortly after he got hired. I've heard that multiple times. I don't know, not uh, didn't hear it from him, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think he realized pretty quickly that you know this was uh, what we talked about. What Joe was able to to manage—that's mm-hmm. you know not easy to do.
0: Was there any one incident that was sort of in private that you saw like, oh boy, this ain't going to work?
2: You know, early you could just see the the things with, you know, in, interaction with, you know, fans, boosters, heck, administrators, people he worked for and with. That, you I, know, I heard there was you, a
0: time where he just wouldn't speak to anybody in the office. Yeah, things like by. things
2: like that. And, just you know, you just knew that, you know, you've got to be an ambassador here. Cal understands that as well as anybody ever has. And not and that's not just with the public i mean if you it's one thing if you can't get along with the you know with the fans, but you've got to you know people that sign your paycheck you've got to certainly at least try to get along with them and uh from one day to the other, it could change, and so you just knew that wasn't going to last very long
0: ironic, a decade later, a decade later, and he's had a transplant,
2: yeah, and just um, you know, say we were saying a prayer for him when that was going down that you know don't have any. Ill ill will. We got along. Uh, I always tell people a lot better than it sounded mm-hmm. because of that horse racing connection.
0: <laughs> and then we come to John Calipari, the guy that there was.
2: The there was ups did not want at the beginning. If there was ever, I remember having a conversation with Mark Story at the Sweet Sixteen when they were getting ready to hire somebody, and I said, you know, I don't know what all went, you know, on with it. was the Derek Rose thing that happened, and you know, it was, uh, it was the, uh, you know, when Derek was in high school. uh, He was taking
0: his SAT test.
2: Yeah, and and Cal in Memphis got pulled into it uh, unfairly, I think. But uh, I I always thought if they had won that championship game, they would have not taken their banner down. Maybe they would have because they took one down for Louisville, but I always thought they wouldn't. The question would Uh, be, too,
0: had they won that.
2: But because of that, yeah, because of that, you know, there was that, you know, question, and is it, you know, we've come to find out there was, you know, Cal was never tied to any of that and has been, uh, you know, flawless, uh, here at Kentucky in in terms of, uh, of that. So, um, any, you know, any, any, NCAA issues, even though I'm sure people up in Indianapolis trying to look really hard to find them, it tells you that, uh, how good he's uh, been at, at taking care of his business. Um, anyway, I remember Mark and I were talking, I said, boy, you know, you would, if I, I could imagine, I can't imagine a guy would be a better fit than Cal just because he's obviously a really good coach and I didn't, didn't ever have any interaction with him, but just he was a really good coach, and he seemed to understand and would be comfortable on that platform as the Kentucky coach. And I said, plus, he would embrace that rivalry with the guy down the road, <laughs> and Kentucky fans would love that. And so he he has been, uh, you know, the if you fed ingredients into a computer for what you would want in a Kentucky coach, I think it would spit out John Calipari.
0: Two subjects to go along with that. Number one is um, – there's been talk here recently about renewing the Kentucky-Indiana series.
2: Hope it happens. <laughs> but I, I think it probably will yeah. in some fashion. Uh, I can understand why Calder won't go back to Bloomington with yeah. what happened up that day. I mean, when Jimmy and, and Mike and I walked in, they called us everything in the book. <laughs> Once they figured out the Kentucky broadcasters. <laughs> right. So you know what they were saying to players and coaches. Uh, had, so, had,
0: had you ever covered a game up there? Why you had yeah, one other one? Happen. Yeah,
2: I had done games up there before. And uh, I mean, that, they, was, they, a, they that was a that was a very emotionally charged atmosphere. You know, you could tell from two hours before the tip-off.
0: I remember several games up there earlier in the in the sixties and the seventies, and uh, I remember with Kaywood. Uh, that was the only place I know that we've been to that. Uh, he had to get in line with a public use the bathroom at halftime.
2: Yeah, there's a few of those yeah. places over the years. Yeah, and
0: uh, he went to them, and he complained to uh, Bobby Knight, and Bobby Knight told him, "You can come in here."
2: Yeah, uh, that was that way at Freedom Hall after they remodeled it. But, yes, but uh, uh, Mike right. Pratt had a connection from his old Kentucky Colonel days. It would find <laughs> us a, somebody's off bathroom in back of somebody's office, and he'd unlock the door and let us go in. Uh, and that was you. Know, just, you know, that that wasn't as big an issue because it was a friendly crowd we'd have been going up of the concourse was. But it wasn't so much the crowd what you're talking about with Kaywood and, you know, rival fans. It was a speed issue. <laughs> you, you know, you only got a short time to get in and out of the bathroom and get back to work.
0: Kentucky Louisville series going forward. Will it ever be the same without Rick Patino there?
2: You know, I hesitate to say ever, because you never know some, something all. Some circumstance will happen somewhere down the road, but it's certainly going to be much different for the foreseeable future.
0: And there's always been this rivalry between Calipari and Patino, probably even going back before Cal came here. Oh yeah, Memphis. Some,
2: something some, some uh, back of the UMass days. And there, there are, maybe maybe Memphis was when they played each other so yes, much. Maybe that really
0: well they were in the same conference. Yeah, that, that
2: uh, intensified the rivalry.
0: There, there's some people who say that. Patino being 70 miles down the road is just a necessary ingredient that if Cal ever thinks about, it drives him to succeed. Do you think he needs that? Will, will he be able to keep the same intensity for the Little series? I think he will. I think,
2: I think he's driven by uh, much more than that. You know, legacy and winning championships and, uh, you know, doing – Good things. Uh, so, like the, uh, he, he understands, I think, uh, his uh, respect for the position that he's in, in terms of, you know, like I was saying with Wood, he you know, the people before him where they've set the bar. And I think he has a, a very healthy respect for that and doesn't and, and want to be the guy that lets it slip. So, I think that kind of thing will, will motivate, uh, will co- always motivate him. Uh, I always will say, I see if you agree that I thought Rick was maybe coasting a little bit. And, Towards the end of his career, well, don't and Cal so. re-energized him. I don't think and, and Cal being here re-energized yeah. him.
0: And I think that may be part of what led him you, into the problem. Could be right. In fact, I had a podcast uh, go with uh, Hoops Weiss, and he he emphatically said that. He said it got to the point that he was embarrassed by not being able to get the kids there. And at the end of the day, this may be it. And and that was a podcast we had done just three weeks before all that came down this year. Like It'll be something like this. I
2: remember listening to it. I didn't know that was the timing on it.
0: Most exciting UK game in basketball you've called?
2: The Most exciting is exciting would be the, the end of regulation of that Michigan State game um, where Patrick Sparks hit that incredible shot to send it to the first overtime. And they end up losing the game. But that that was as exciting a moment, uh, unfortunately, that they, they lost the game. The most memorable would be the championship. I mean, as I said earlier, you as the broadcaster for Kentucky, you expect Kentucky basketball to – You know, if you do it for very long, you'll get to call some championship games and uh, win their share of them. And so the uh, day of that championship game, I, I knew there was a chance I could kind of go into the club, so to speak, that <laughs> if they won it, and I thought they would. Um, that that would uh, you know have one of those that you know those get replayed Gaywood's, Ralph's Claudes they get replayed over the years because they won championships so you knew that would happen if they won it so uh, that that's the most memorable one.
0: Most exciting UK football game you call.
2: Probably the LSU when they upset uh, LSU when they were number one, three overtimes um, just so many dramatic plays to extend that game and to uh, extend it through the overtimes and then to, uh, to Braxton Kelly makes the tackle to Charles Scott to win it
0: would you would you have ever dreamed of someone had told you in, in advance Kentucky is going to come from Brian winning three overtimes and a defensive play is going to be the winning play
2: yeah no I, I, you know remember the the week before they had played very poorly down at South Carolina. So that was a really good Kentucky team, and they played a Thursday night game in South Carolina and kicked the ball around the field, a bunch of turnovers, and um, g- got beat by a team they were better than. And I, so I think that probably fo- you know, focused them the next week to where, you know, watching practice, you knew they were ready to play. But still, this was the number one team in the country. And um, then, uh, you know, the way a game plays out, I think they get down 17-7. Um but that uh, was a you know, very resilient group, and they believed in themselves. And so that kind of showed up in, in that game. I remember the last moment, there had been so many – you know, you think about the Bluegrass Miracle, it snatched away. So many of those, you know, just the late hammer falls at the last minute uh, a late field goal or something for Kentucky football, and a big upset had been pulled away. I remember when uh, Braxton made the tackle. If you hear the broadcast, there's a slight pause. Yes. I- thinking. Before I sell the, before I sell this, let me make sure there's not a flag or something there. It's really happened, when, when I, and he really is short. I watch it all the time on the, the
0: first DVR, down. and when I watch it, the first thing it tells me that they won the game is one of the officials dart off the field real quick <laughs> right up there, and I said, okay, it's over.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: The best opposing football team that you've called a game against? <sighs>
2: gosh let's see here
0: could it be the team you beat
2: the LSU team Yeah. no i, I, I think that was just, they, they won the national championship with two losses yeah, that year did. um so uh they they were the national champions i'm thinking you know one of you know the Spurrier teams in there i'm trying to think but his best team was probably right before i started doing games 96 was yeah. the best team, and i started in 97 yeah. um I'm just trying to I thought about that one off, off the top of my head. You know, I'm thinking Florida, you know, Peyton Manning, you know, that first year he had that shootout with Couch, and that was a Tennessee team that was loaded the next year, uh, won the national championship. So 97 or 98, Tennessee, maybe.
0: 98, but Peyton was gone. T Martin, T. Martin was yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, so, you know, one of those two um, Tennessee teams, uh, i thinking one of Alabama. One of Saban's teams uh, at Alabama in these recent years, um, but off the top of my head, I'd maybe say yeah, 97 or 98 Tennessee, maybe, but I probably short shifting Alabama. I'd have to recall. I don't play them every year, so I'd have to remember the match the Alabama championships with the year at which Kentucky played them, and there might be one of those in there.
0: Best opposing basketball team,
2: probably that second championship team for Florida. Joe Kim Noah and those guys, and they they were winning the second time. And um, Kentucky, I remember, put up a really good fight on a Saturday night game day game at Rupp. And I think Ramel Bradley, I'm thinking, maybe had a shot in the air that might have won or tied the game and uh, missed. But, I mean, that team went on and won a second national championship. Um, So, you know, that's that's one that uh, comes to mind right off the top.
0: One out of left field for all of our fans out there. Name me three of the best basketball referees you've seen call a game. Not necessarily the same game. Three good officials:
2: Gerald Boudreaux, uh, Andre Patillo. I thought was always thought was really good. I think Tony Green's really good. Um,
0: I wouldn't ask you to name the three worst, but we don't want to be sued.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's probably best. Uh, and there are others I'm missing. It was. The um, Mike and I try to have a, a you, know, you can interact with the basketball officials more, have a uh, try to have a good relationship with those guys and and cut up with them and because I have a great respect for what they're doing, don't always agree with them and you know co- broadcasters have bad games, officials have bad games, coaches and players have bad games. Like it's okay to say when they're if you think they're having a bad game or they missed one, but also say when you know everybody thinks they got one wrong but they didn't uh, do, to do point that out too.
0: Do you remember the story? K. once said when he asked one of the officials hold the game.
2: Oh, Burl Crowell. Yeah,
0: okay, tell me
2: that. That's the story Ralph uh, had told me, and then uh, he told it when K. passed. The uh, broadcast rights had changed from host communications to the Kentucky News Network, and they had changed, uh, made some changes to the format, as would be the case usually when that kind of thing happened. And they were adjusting to it in probably maybe the, one of the early basketball games, and – they were still in a commercial break and they were getting ready to tip the, tip the ball up to start the game. And Kaywood said, Ralph, Kaywood had those glasses down on the end of his nose, turned to Ralph and said, Ralph, see if Burl will hold the tip for us. So Ralph calls Burl over, Burl, would you hold the, the tip for just 30 seconds? We're still in a commercial break. And Burl looked at Kaywood and said, I will if Kaywood will say something nice about me. And Kaywood turned and looked at him and said, throw the damn thing up. <laughs> <laughs> and of course I was like Burl laughed and you know even if, even if he wasn't going to hold it he'd have been laughing so long it would have held up the tip
0: your favorite road arena basketball
2: uh, Allen Fieldhouse was a cool place I've been, been there much uh, but the, all the history there Madison Square Garden when we get to be down courtside because of all the history that's there when we're up uh, the Champions Classic, we're broadcasting from a different spot, well up above the, the lower bowl, and it's not as as good a sight line and as enjoyable to experience. But those games, like Cal's first year, they played UConn in a game, just a one-game deal there. Great game. John Wall was huge. and We were right there courtside, and I was a Knicks fan growing up, so I don't know how many great games were pro and college played in that arena. So um, that one, uh, when we're in that spot down there courtside at the Garden – um, those are two that come to mind. No, there's none in the SEC that uh, particularly have anything you know good or or bad. They're, I don't have any anything bad to say about any of them, but nothing that really distinguishes anything is uh, well above any of the others.
0: Favorite football stadium on the road?
2: Sanford Stadium, hey, Georgia. Said guy. that very quickly. Yeah, a lot of re- I always have I've been asked that. I think more more for football than basketball for whatever reason. It seems like the quintessential college football environment. It's right in the heart of campus, down in a low spot. So there's this bridge up above one end zone where people gather and watch the game. And, you know, that's not something you normally see. It's always full. you got the hedges, you got all the history there. Um, and, And this is the selfish broadcaster part of it. At Florida, at Tennessee, we're... At the top, the press box is on the top of the upper deck. At Georgia, at least for the time being, it is still between the two decks. So it's a great sight line. Uh, it's an open air feel. Uh, so you, you really feel the crowd there. And uh, Kentucky has, has had some good performances there. That's probably affects it a little bit, too. They've uh, had some, uh, you know, one there in 09. But, I mean, they've, they've played well there uh, probably more often than some, some of the other road venues over the years. Uh, but just from the broadcast position to the feel of it to uh, where it's you know located in campus, I like Athens as a maybe my favorite SEC road town um, for a lot of reasons. Great restaurants, great music background to Athens, and um, so it, th- that's the one for football. I always say.
0: Just a, a quick line or two about some players you've covered. Yourmani um, Dawson.
2: You know uh, he was before I started doing games, but just, um, you know, I remember him, uh, you know, interviewing him, just always such a good-hearted guy, you you know, easy to talk to, uh, and then, you know, what he did in the NFL, just, you know, so always kind of take, take extra pride in him being from Kentucky because he was one of the best ever at his position.
0: Anthony White. Yeah,
2: versatile guy, underrated guy. Um, you know, he he was the perfect fit for Hal's offense, and uh, there was so much uh, attention paid to to Tim and, and Craig, and understandably so. But Anthony probably gets a, a little uh, of the, the short end of the stick in terms of being appreciated for what he accomplished and how good he was.
0: Wesley Woodyard,
2: great leader. I always have said Derek Ramsey was the best leader I ever saw. And I didn't cover Derek, but just years later doing shows with him, if he brought some of his former teammates around, Mm -hmm. whatever the group, this would be 30, 40 years after they were out of college, and Derek was still a quarterback in that group. (laughs) Uh, Wesley Woodyard was that kind of leader, I think. Tim Couch. Uh, Boy, uh, just, you know, I think, uh, I'm trying to think of the right action. The first thing popped into my head was a consummate pro not in terms of a professional football player, but a pro in terms of the approach to, you know, that you would want anybody to take to their work. He studied it. Uh, he was obviously amazingly talented, but he put in the work and he, uh, you know, he, he looked at it as a craft, I think. Um, you know, like a, you know, like a Tony Gwynn looked at hitting, uh, Pete Rose looked at hitting, you know, those kind of things. Uh, he, uh, had a, you know, a great appreciation for the game and the approach it took to so that you put that talent, that kind of work ethic together. So that's, uh, and you know, I'm selfishly uh, always uh, uh, have a connection to Tim because him being so good made my transition into the job really <laughs> easy. Well, we're going to add another thing. That's how the touchdown – you asked the phrase earlier. I don't think I fully answered that. The touchdown Kentucky signature phrase. I didn't really have anything. And Jim Host encouraged me to kind of find a touchdown call and nothing felt – everything felt kind of forced. And finally, I just started saying touchdown Kentucky with a lot of enthusiasm because that just felt natural to me. felt genuine. And the fact that – and it kind of took off when Tim threw seven touchdown passes up at Indiana in his third game. And – you know, when you hear the phrase a lot, it tends to stick. If they were mm-hmm. scoring a touchdown a, a month, then it, it wouldn't have caught on. But Tim made it catch on. Craig Yeast. What a competitor. Uh, you know, he, he would probably tell you. I remember the coaches used to have to push him as far as they want him to do more in practice. Uh, and Craig's a coach now. I'm sure he pushes his guys to practice. Uh, but when the, when the lights came on, whew, what a competitor. Mo Williams. Oh, gosh. What's the best way to describe Mo? Uh, uh, you know, one of the arguably Sonny Collins to me is probably the best running back ever that I've seen. Mo's probably maybe right in their contention to be the next. Um, you know, he was uh, scintillating, maybe one word. He could, you know, he handed him ball and a quick hitter up the middle, and he outran Florida. Kentucky players didn't outrun the Gators too often, and he did on a 70 yard touchdown run. Randall Cobb. Oh, boy. Competitor is the first thing that comes to mind for him. Winner. You know, whatever you were playing, if you – don't worry about the size. Just pick Randall. If you get first pick, pick Randall, and you'll have a better chance to win. Um, so, uh, that's what – you know, he was just a guy that found a way to get it done. He'd, people would say, boy, I wish he was six 6'2", and I would always say, no, you don't, because he'd be an orange Thank goodness he was smaller because that's how he ended up at Kentucky. Benny thankfully, uh, you know a lot probably a lot of that same kind of spirit as as Randall. Uh, you know, I think Randall always talked about being motivated, like Michael Jordan was. He'd look for ways anybody take a slight at him, whether it was his size or or whatever, and he'd use that as motivation. I think Benny's got that kind of mindset. Uh, just a fierce competitor, uh, runs with a lot of pride. I think maybe it's a good way to put it.
0: Tayshawn Prince. Elegant
2: player, uh, maybe. Provided me with one of my most memorable moments. You know, we talked talking about memorable moments earlier. That's one, you know, in terms of that fifth three-pointer when he hit the five straight to start the game against North Carolina. That was my first season doing Kentucky basketball, and that's still probably as loud as I've ever heard Rupp Arena. I don't know if it, it was the loudest, but it's it's a contender, and um, that was a special moment, and uh but you know it was you know so long and moved so smoothly and uh you know uh, just uh played i thought kind of elegantly but um just a you know very versatile could do everything well
0: anthony davis
2: oh oh gosh what's the best word for anthony um stellar talent maybe i mean you know just he He's. I've used a comparison to him recently with Justify. Justify didn't start racing until February of his three-year-old season and won the Triple Crown. You know, Anthony, as a freshman, won every award they gave that college basketball season, led his team to a national championship, and he's a much better player now. Can score fifty points in a game. I mean, he. Uh, I don't know if he even scored in the national championship game. He could dominate a game without scoring, but now he's uh, uh, so much better player. Overall, a few, with a few more years of experience, but just so brilliantly talented and could control a game defensively. Maybe that's the, the thing. It should I should say it's the had the ability to control a game without anything he would do on the offensive end.
0: Nazim Mohammed.
2: You know, I remember Naz. Uh, Jim O'Brien, Obie, uh, Rick's assistant, longtime coach of the Pacers and other teams. Obie and I did JV when they had that JV team. They broadcast games on the radio, and I did them with Obie, and I remember. Watching nazi one time in his first year when he was really overweight, and I told Obi, "I said, you know, from the waist up, he's a heck of a player." <laughs> and he kind of paused and looked and he laughed. He said, "Yeah, I guess you're right." And boy, once Nas got in shape, and who would have thought he would have been the guy that lasted the longest from that '98 right. championship team? Uh, but I mean, just,
0: freshman year when he could barely get on the court, you know,
2: and and that you know shows you what the what his work ethic was. Uh, great hands, so uh, just hard worker. Maybe what stands uh, about Nas Jamal Mashburn. Oh boy, I loved watching him play. Uh, You could make the argument, maybe the most complete, one of the most complete Kentucky basketball players ever, because he could score inside and out, rebound, uh, you know, could come up with steals defensively. You know, he wasn't a lockdown defender, but he could, you know, that press he could he could read passes and make steals. So just, you know, as as complete a player as Kentucky's ever had, and maybe one of the most valuable ever because for everything Rick did at that timetable would have been set back in terms of the recovery of the Kentucky program. If the big fellow from New York hadn't signed on to play here.
0: Right. Tony Dell, Sh-
2: Just shooter, dead eye shooter. Um, and, you know, just the way he was built, those long arms just a perfectly built basketball player for, you know, today's game. They didn't talk as much about length then as they do now. But uh, he had those long arms. He was six feet tall, but he played more like about six six, and just uh, you know, as as, I don't know if there's ever Kyle Macy's the maybe the number one clutch shooter you think of, but Tony, I'd be comfortable with Tony taking about any shot too.
0: Best decision you ever made in
2: your career? Oh gosh, let's see, probably. Here's the one. This is an odd one. 95. Um, the Dunbar Booster Club came to Ralph and wanted to buy the time to do all of every one of their games. And uh, Ralph has, has asked me to do those games on Friday nights. And I didn't want to. I was a you know, uh, young guy. I didn't want to give up my uh, every Friday night to do those games at that time. My uh, young son at that time was two years old. And uh, he came back to me again, and I agreed to do it. And then looking back, I think that gave me games every week. So I got the reps, if you will, and I became a much better football play-by-play guy. And I think he was knew what was coming. That He would, he didn't tell me that at the time, but I think he knew what was coming, and he knew I needed those reps to get to the level to be able to take the job over when he stepped down was going to obviously step down uh, after – the 96 football season, or basketball season, and uh, or no, football season. And um, so I think agreeing to do those jobs was probably one, one that comes to mind, those games, because I, I got the reps to get uh, a lot better. Uh, and, uh, again, without having a lot of college experience, I needed to be as good as I could be um, when I took my tape to Jim Host.
0: Did you ever make a decision that you look back on and saying, boy, that was the worst decision I ever made?
2: Nothing fortunately stands out right. I'm sure if I gave that more thought, I'd probably come up with with something, but not, fortunately, nothing really comes to mind. I've, I've been very blessed that things have uh, you know worked out well. and as I said, it was a narrow goal, and I had to be luck, lucky as you have to have some level of talent, hopefully, but you know work hard, but you got to be a little lucky too, and to come along at the right time. and um, so I can't think of anything on the, on the, uh, the negative end of the spectrum that really comes to mind.
0: You're in the middle of a remarkable career. You got years to go yet. You're nowhere near <laughs> retirement. But who's been the most influential person in your life?
2: Well, beyond my parents, work life, probably Ralph would be. At, Ralph Hacker would be at the top of the list, and uh, and Jim Host, and then guys that I worked with been in that first job when I was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. None of these names will will uh, will be recognizable to to you uh or most listeners maybe all bill brown owned the radio station in paris uh, who had uh, covered news in los angeles covered the manson trial and then uh, brought this little radio station in paris and another one in a couple of other towns and uh, two guys that were my program directors in those early days a guy named doug vaughn who's still around and john Darrell marsh who lives down in south carolina now and just the way they you know those days now in digital uh, recording you can you mess something up, you can stop, highlight it, delete it, and redo it. Then you recorded it on what looked like an eight-track tape, and if you were doing a five-minute newscast and you messed up at four minutes and 50 seconds, you, you had to erase it and do the whole thing over again, <laughs> and they made me do that. <laughs> and uh, that, you know, they they taught me right. So those those are some some names that uh, nobody will recognize that uh, uh, are were important in, in my uh, development, but, uh, you know, in – in this, for this pertains to the UK job, uh, Ralph Hacker, Jim Host, right at the top of the list.
0: How would you like to be remembered as a broadcaster?
2: Well, In, in this job, that um, uh, he, he uh, did justice to the job, maybe. That, makes, that sounds good. Uh, because, I, again, I have great respect for where Claude Sullivan and Kaywood Ledford set the bar. And um, you know, I think Kentucky fans expect you to meet the expectations, and if you don't, they'll, they'll get somebody. There'll be somebody else in there doing the job. So I'm, I'm proud that I've been able to uh, meet the expectations at least well enough to to keep the job. Um, but um, just that, you know, I had, uh, I had a, a very healthy respect for the for the job and uh, the. Uh, with a way to approach it and so that I um, uh, respected uh, respected it and uh, did it justice.
1: Our thanks to Tom Leach for sitting in on this episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs. You can hear Tom Leach every weekday morning from 9 to 10 on the Leach Report on 630 WLAP in Lexington. You can also get the Leach Report on Tom's website, TomLeachKY.com. Make sure to follow Tom and Oscar on Twitter. Tom is at TomLeachKY and Oscar, he's at Wildcat News. For more of Oscar's conversation with Tom Leach, you can go back and listen to episode 63, part one, anytime at OscarCombs.com. For all episodes of Conversations, those are easily available for free in the Google Play Store and in the iTunes Store. Just search for Wildcat News, click subscribe, and each episode is automatically downloaded to your mobile device and on demand 24-7. I'm Bo Robinson, and I thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dogs. And as always, go big blue.